Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today, it's episode 30. It's titled, Are You Sure You're Diversified? Before I get into the topic, I wanted to revisit briefly last episode, episode 29. You may or may not have noticed that I went a little planet money on you and I added some music interludes. My thought process on that was music sometime when added to a podcast can or to a show can sort of reset the brain a little bit. However, I got some pretty pointed feedback from some listeners that just weren't too keen on it. Comments such as cheesy, distracting, decoration, etc. Although I got some comments that were positive. So if you could, if you notice the music, if you feel strongly that you don't like it or you think it was a great addition, just email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. This episode, no music. And my, my thought is probably not to do music in future episodes unless there's an overwhelming desire for some type uh, of music to, to play at times in the background just to reset the brain. But on to today's topic. I got an email from Adam R. this past week, and let me quote briefly from him. He says, in listening to your show, one question that has stuck out to me is how one should, quote, diversify. This term is thrown around so loosely in the financial world. People think that having different mutual funds means they are diversified. Others think they have to have stocks in each one of the different major sectors. Others think they need real estate or real property. Diversification. When I was an institutional investment advisor, we would occasionally write memos to our institutional clients, to our college foundations, private foundations, endowments, etc. And and a lot of these memos were just really to calm Worries. It'd be the leading story that was driving markets, or there was a level of fear. And so we would kind of address what was going on. And all memos need a conclusion. And invariably, the conclusion to our memo was diversify. That was the message. If you're diversified, you'll be able to ride out the storm. And diversification has very much become, it is, as Adam pointed out, just sort of tossed around, thrown around loosely, it's become a platitude, almost a cliche, and rarely do we step back and say, am I really diversified? What, what does diversification mean? And I, and he, Adam looked at some, has certainly listened to the old episodes, and, and it sounds like I didn't really address what it means to, to diversify. Episode 20 talked about how to allocate your assets. Episode 21, investing without a map were both episodes on asset allocation and particularly the flaws with modern portfolio theory. 
and, and how to invest without a map, but I didn't really address diversification. So we want to address it here. Hopefully you'll find it interesting. And traditionally, though, diversification from in modern portfolio theory was, and we talked about this, you have these models. The models have an expected return for a particular asset category, say U.S. stocks. It has an expected volatility risk. To what extent is the is those stocks supposed to go up or expected to go up or down? But then you have this concept of correlation. How does one asset category move their returns move in tandem with another? Are international stocks do they and they do they tend to go up? just like U.S. stocks at the same time. Maybe not as far, not as high, but there's, there's this idea of correlation. And traditionally with modern portfolio theory, diversification meant you optimize the portfolio for the, you would minimize risk or volatility for an expected level of return. And you can go back to episode 20 and re-listen to that, so I won't, I won't dwell on it here, but that, that concept of correlation is a key aspect. And the idea is if you put uncorrelated assets together, statistically, you'll be diversified. The flaw with that model is, and a flaw with asset allocation models, it assumes these correlations between one asset type and another are static. And the reality is they shift depending on the market environment. This became perfectly clear in 2008 when many asset types that were thought to be uncorrelated or only partially correlated were actually perfectly correlated during that downtrend. They, they all fell like a rock and exposing investors to, to large losses. And so I tend to not use sort of these dubious statistical models to figure out whether my portfolio is diversified. And instead, I use more of a a qualitative framework for deciding to what extent am I diversified or how to diversify. And and this qualitative framework, it's not rocket science, and, and it's what many hedge fund managers use, many private capital managers use, many investors, top-tier investors use, maybe not these exact three questions that I'm using, but the concept. And, and the reality is I learned a lot of these concepts from, from hedge fund managers. Here's the questions. Question one, in terms of diversification, what is the primary driver of the potential return for an investment? Investments returns are have primary drivers something that is the primary thing that's impacting what the return will be and I'll and I'll give some examples here in a few minutes the second question first what can I do to minimize the likelihood of losing money on this investment and question 3 is is the potential upside of this investment significantly higher than its potential downside so those are the three questions that we want to explore deep, more deeply, and I'll give, I'll give some examples. Now, 
A perfect portfolio is one in which the investment holdings have different return drivers. In other words, if you, if you have different return drivers, then by definition, you're diversified because you have different things. So perfect portfolio, different return drivers. The downside is limited and the upside is massive. And, and the term for that, limited downside, massive upside, is what is known as asymmetrical risk reward. I'll give you a quote. Here's this, this is a quote from Howard Marks, Oak Tree Capital. They run distressed debt and other private capital strategies. He writes periodic memos, and I'll link to them in the show notes. One of my virtual investing mentors, I have followed him for years and how he invests. I've been out to their firm, our clients, my former clients invested with their firm. Very, very smart investors. Quote, Investing requires us to position a portfolio for future developments, but the future isn't knowable. To achieve superior results, an investor must be able, with some regularity, to find asymmetries, instances when the upside potential exceeds the downside risk. And that's what successful investing is. Asymmetrical risk-reward. The potential upside perhaps is 5 to 1, compared to the downside, and having different return drivers. And why do we invest this way? Because, as Howard Marks says, the future isn't knowable. We cannot predict the future, what's going to happen. And so we have to try to structure portfolios with different return drivers. Now, let me give you an example of a particular investment. When I, back about 10 years ago, at my old firm, I was drafted, volunteered to co-head or co-lead a direct alternative investments group. So previous to that, we had only invested in what are known as fund-to-fund. So if we invested in private equity, such as venture capital leverage buyout funds, we would invest in, we would research managers, but they were allocating to the underlying limited partnerships. And we wanted to invest directly in limited partnerships for our clients. And so I, I was going to co-head this group. We were hiring additional analysts, but given we were short-staffed, I became the energy timber analyst, sort of real assets, real assets with the exception of real estate. And real at, well, I guess real assets doesn't typically include real estate, so <laughs> real assets would be energy and timber. And I I didn't know a whole lot about either one. And and one way to learn to invest is I like to focus on asset classes. And so I took a deep dive into energy and timber. And I want to talk about timber today and apply these three questions. What is the primary driver of timber? If you own a tree farm, and there are tree farms out there, what is the primary driver of returns? Well, having toured these tree farms once by helicopter in Oregon, you, you quickly learn as you meet with timber investment organizations, timber investment management organizations called TMOs, is the primary driver of timber returns is the fact that trees grow. And you can, if, if you have a long enough holding period, let's and you buy young trees. So you buy a tree stand that's two or three years old, just been planted, and you're going to hold it for 25 years. 
It is virtually impossible to lose money on that investment. The downside risk is limited. Why? Because the primary driver return is the fact that those trees are going to grow. Now, first thing people think of when you think of trees, well, what if they burn down? That's an extreme event. And so you don't want to just buy one plot of tree. You buy, and institutions do that, you buy several plots of trees. Now, you don't typically insure. You would think, well, go get fire insurance. But most TMOs don't. It's just not cost effective to insure for fire or disease because typically you can plant in such a way that you're not going to get totally wiped out. And and you try and – tree farms in very arid areas isn't terribly effective either because if you're in a high mountain desert running a tree farm where forest fires are a potential risk – that means it doesn't rain very much, which means the trees don't grow very fast, which means your capital, your investment, isn't increasing in value very quickly. But the primary driver of trees or timber's investment is the growth of the trees. It's not necessarily the price of wood because if wood prices are depressed, you don't have to sell. You can, the timber managers call it, call it Let's see, what's the word they use? They call it storing the value on the stump, where you you don't have to go out and sell. You can store the value as the tree will continue to grow. Your investment will continue to appreciate as as, as time passes. That's an example of a return driver growing trees. Eventually, you will harvest them, sell them for wood, but it's it's a great independent investment stream different return driver than than anything else. Now consider a stock portfolio. A it's a US stocks, European stocks, Asian stocks. What is the primary driver of stock returns? It's corporate earnings growth, which is primarily driven by the growth of the economy. And if you own a diversified portfolio uh, of stocks, that is the primary return driver. And, and that's why most investors aren't really diversified. They might think they're diversified if they do the whole correlation analysis and, and you've minimized your return for, or you maximize your return for a given level of risk. But in reality, because the primary return driver is not or is the growth of the economy, then you, they can be – that's just not diversification. You need investments with different return drivers. Having bonds in your portfolio, the primary return driver of fixed income is the income component, the, the fact that bonds play interest and in fact that bonds actually, and if the economy is slowing, interest rates tend to fall, the value of those bonds go up. And so that's a natural diversifier to stocks. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud. 
with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What's interesting about hedge funds and private capital managers is they seek out return drivers that are completely differentiated from anything else. And let me give you a couple examples. And, and I first realized this back, I think it was probably 2000, 2001, I met with Bill Ackman, hedge fund manager. He runs Pershing Square Capital Management now. This was his, his formal, former firm called Gotham Partners. In fact, there was a, a recent profile on, in The New Yorker on Bill Ackman, and I'll, I'll include it in the show notes. But I, I was meeting with him and he described an investment in their portfolio that they had gotten very, very cheap. And their return driver was the out, potential outcome or the eventual outcome of a lawsuit. And I, and I don't remember the specifics of it, but what I remember is, wow, he's got an investment where the return driver is whether they win a lawsuit or not, which would be a diversifier because if you got it cheap enough. And if you got it so cheap that if they lost, there was limited downside. But if they won, there was massive upside. And that's how this investment was. And the driver of the return was the outcome of a lawsuit. That's a great diversifier. Another example is we go back to Howard Marks, Oak, Mark, Oak Tree Capital, that run, does distressed debt. What's the return driver of distressed debt? Well, distressed debt, first off, you're buying notes or bonds, could be private notes, that, that are in default or very, very near default. So they're selling for 20 cents on the dollar, 30 cents on the dollar. The return driver, in some extent, what happens then is they form a credit committee and there's a workout. And ultimately, the return driver is just time in the sense that there is the vast majority of time there is a settlement and it's just a question of how long is that settlement going to take so if you're buying distressed debt at 20 cents you have a seat at the table on the creditor committee so you have a large enough stake then you're there in negotiations and it's just a negotiation workout process has to be approved by the bankruptcy judge but it's it's a return stream 
that is driven by a defined process that works out over time. And, and that's what drives the return of distressed debt. It doesn't have to do with the economic growth. It doesn't have to do, it's very much just time to work out as part of a creditor committee. Here's another example of a distinct return driver. In 2010, I met with a hedge fund in New York, and I forget the name of it, but they had actually formed a their own mortgage servicing company. If you recall, during the, the housing bust, banks, many banks had a lot of underperforming mortgage where the residents that owned the houses hadn't paid in, in a very long time. And this hedge fund negotiated with its banks to buy this mortgage paper very, very cheaply. And then they started, the hedge fund, their own mortgage servicing subsidiary and started working with these homeowners. They had bought the paper so cheap that they could actually write down the value of the mortgage, lower the payment, and keep the homeowners in their home. And their whole model was to keep them in their home and eventually once they were able to restructure the paper resell it and and that was their strategy but the return driver was completely again different from the market it was their ability to restructure this paper but they created their their desire to create an independent return stream independent from anything else they started their own mortgage company and and that's really a key to diversification is to try to identify investments. First off, every investment you need to understand before you go and invest, what is it that's driving the return? And what's the potential upside? And what's the potential downside? And is there an asymmetrical risk reward? Much greater upside versus downside. Ray Dalio, who runs the fund Bridgewater, has built a whole strategy around this called the all-weather portfolio, where in their case, it's going back to this idea that most investors have too much exposure to the stock market or one primary driver return economic growth. He's created a portfolio where they've actually levered up the fixed income. It's a risk parity portfolio, so... Fixed income returns are lower typically than stocks, but if you go out on margin and buy fixed income, you can get a speculative volatility similar to stocks, but the return driver is very different. There's a book coming out in this month by Tony Robbins, and I, I didn't know very much about Tony Robbins. I I just didn't follow him. I know he did infomercials. I, it seems like he did a lot of consulting but he hasn't written a book in 20 years. He's written a 700 or 650-page book. It's called Money, Master the Game. He recently was interviewed by Tim Ferriss on Tim Ferriss' podcast. And he, what, what's interesting about this book is Tony Robbins interviewed some of the top investors, individuals like Paul Tudor, Tudor Jones, Ray Dalio that I mentioned, Jack Bogle. And, and he reiterate in this podcast, and I assume it's in his book, some of the takeaways that he's learned from these top investors. And and they very much echo these three questions that I'm talking about that you should think about anytime you do an investment. 
He said these top-tier investors are obsessed with not losing money. The level of obsession that is mind-boggling is what he said. And their their first focus whenever they do investment is how do I not lose money? That's the first focus. Second, they're obsessed with asymmetrical risk-reward. Least amount of risk for maximum amount of the upside, just as we echoed. And third, they absolutely know beyond a shadow of doubt that they're going to be wrong. And, and so investing involves making a mistake. But with an investment, if you have minimized a potential downside and your upside is massive or you have an asymmetrical risk-reward, then you can actually make a lot of mistakes and still be profitable. And that's the concept. Now, I recognize that most of us can't invest in distressed debt. We can't go out and buy a timber farm. We're sort of stuck with mostly publicly traded asset categories. That's one reason I, if you've looked at investing on a map, you see I have a, a large percent of my portfolio in bonds and it, to some extent in cash because I don't want to have a high percentage of the return driver be stocks where I'm exposed to simply the growth economy. I want to diversify as much as possible. One thing I've done, and, and this is something that, that smaller investors can do, is I have bought private real estate. I bought a house. We bought a house in May. It was through an estate sale. I sat for many years on our local planning and zoning board. So I know the zoning of our town, and it's a block from the university in a, in a special zone called Podesta, the Ped Zone, I think, where you can do more concentrated investing. I, I bought it for $170,000. i have never really bought private real estate before other than my farm. and But I knew the process of getting the permits and what it would take to take this house and split it into a triplex. At least I thought I did. I knew the permitting process. Now, we've made a lot of mistakes. The the contractor I had didn't realize we needed this in the final inspection that we actually needed three furnaces and the windows weren't right. And we've, we've had delay after delay after delay. It's been six months. We still don't have renters in. Yet, it's a great diversifier ultimately because, one, I know the downside is limited because I know because of the zone it is it's in that I bought it for essentially cheaper than the value of the land, but there was a house on it. So I can afford to put money in it. There's a house on it to put in the triplex, but I have a floor, the value of the land, which is actually much higher than my purchase price when somebody comes along and wants to buy it, build a five-story apartment building because it's a block and a half from the university. The primary driver of returns, once I have renters in, is the growth of the university, and it's the, it's the rental income. That's why private real estate's a great investment because it's not necessarily tied. It's, it's hyper-local. You get it in the right spot. It's not tied to necessarily what's going on in Wall Street, et cetera. So that's an example of a diversifier that, that many investors can pursue. And that's one reason why a lot of investors do do that because it is, they're not, it is an independent return stream separate completely from the growth of the economy from anything else and it's a great investment but the key is obviously once you pay for it and to buy at 
as cheaply as you can. And, and real estate in my town is pretty pricey. And so it wasn't until this thing came along that we actually felt like we had an opportunity. So in summary, to be diversified means finding investments where the return drivers are independent, where you understand what the potential downside is and do everything you can to minimize the risk of loss, and where the potential reward is greater, hopefully much greater, than the downside. Those are hard to find. Investing is hard. But the key is don't feel overly confident that you're diversified because you followed modern portfolio theory. Understand what you own and how it behaves and what drives the returns. So that is episode 30. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide where I'll email you weekly the show notes, mention things that I forgot to put in the podcast or in the episode, answer listener questions. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net, the insider's guide. That's also where show notes are. Any questions, email me, please, jd at jdavidstein.com. Everything I've shared with you in this, in this episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Next week, episode 31.